0: grab a seat. Well, we're going to have a little Christmas in September. You guys ready? Yeah, if Macy's can do it, so can we. Seriously, two months ago, I was at Hobby Lobby, and they were clearancing out a bunch of stuff. And I asked, what are you doing this for? And they said, we're making room for Christmas stuff. This was mid-July. That's just sick. Just sick. Uh, a little confession about Christmas, um, kind of embarrassed to say this, very kind of non-pastor like here, but I hated Christmas growing up. Not, not Santa, I like that dude. This is the embarrassing part. I, I really didn't understand and I didn't get and I really didn't like the Christian Christmas. I didn't get the music that we sang, there was all these lyrics of words that I don't use in everyday life, like stuff like, in ex Chelsea's deo. I I sung that song for probably the first eight years of my life. It makes Chelsea's Deo. I had no idea what, like it was like a Jamaican, like Deo, no clue. What does it mean? So I I found out it's Latin, but to a kid, it really just means lame because you have no idea what you're singing at all. And I just, I've got to be honest. I mean, to a kid, again, remind me, remember that I'm saying that. Dirty mangers, farm animals, some old dudes that for being wise men, had no clue what a good gift for a newborn was. Like, oh, thank you for this myrrh, you're so wise. My kid will love it. But how is that gonna compete with a bearded man bounding off a flying sled pulled by magic reindeer with a bag full of presents with your name on it? I mean, honestly, to me as a kid, it didn't compare. There was no comparison at all. So am I telling you to celebrate Santa with your kids or not? Gosh, no. I'm not telling you that at all. I'm just giving a few jokes to get us warmed up, and I want to say that what I missed as a kid, I want us to get today. That the Christmas story, this story that's found in your text, blows Santa Claus out of the water. This story really will change everything for us if we believe it. This story, if you really listen today, I'm sure it's going to be the most beautiful sound that you've ever heard because there's nothing like the God that we serve. The story today is that God became flesh. The God of this universe was willing to come down and become like us in order to save us. So let's look at this truth. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Today we're going to do something that will be a little uncomfortable for some of you guys. I'm sorry about that. Um, we don't do uncomfortable just for uncomfortable sake. okay? I know that some of you guys are seated in seats where you can't really see. Um, there's either someone in front of you or there's a pole or something like that. I kind of like that about Crossroads. It's because this isn't a theater. This isn't a show. And so anytime that we get an opportunity to do something that breaks that down, that lets you guys know that you're the church, It's not the person who's up here. We want to take advantage of it. So, we're going to break up into groups of six or seven. We're going to read this passage together. I know it's going to be uncomfortable for some of you guys. That's not why we're doing it. We're doing it because we are the church, and we want you guys to do this in community. So, if you don't feel comfortable reading out loud, just have someone else do it. But get in groups of six or seven. You're going to read Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. You guys can go ahead and go. You guys can move chairs. You can do whatever you need. There it is. About uh, one more minute. All right, why don't you guys take your seats. Make sure you get those rows nice and laserously straight for next next gathering too. Verse 26 again, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Hold up, I want to stop here just for a second. I know a lot of us have read this passage a ton of times before, and we just kind of gloss over it, we just kind of fly right through it, but I can't help but wonder, if I started off my sermon today, basically telling you guys about, you guys will never believe it this week, an angel showed up to me. I don't care if I described what the wings looked like, or the color of the robe, or the voice that sounded like, you know, like a brook moving through. it. I think a lot of you guys would question that story a little bit. That really happened? What, what's Brandon doing here with this? I'm not sure that I can trust him. I know that I probably would question it if one of you guys, just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean any different. I still am a little skeptical. If someone says they believe in angel, I'm probably or they saw an angel, I'm probably going to hesitate for a little bit and say, can I really trust this? Is this really real? Angels don't exactly show up all the time. How can I know that this happened?" And if we can't, as Christians, look at the Bible and say, you know what? There's some, there's some hard-to-believe stuff in here. There's some unbelievable happenings. I mean, angels showing up, virgin births just in this passage alone. We see, I mean, like a disembodied hand writing on the wall elsewhere. There's some wacky stuff in the Bible. And we've got to be able to acknowledge that and say this is why we believe this and that we do believe this. And so I don't want to just gloss over this today because I'm sure in a room this size there's people here that are saying, how can I know this was true? How can I know that this happened? Is this this really real? This kind of stuff doesn't happen in the world too often. I mean, parents, raise your hand up with how many fingers of children you had by virgin birth. (laughs) Not too many, right? But look at this. This is Mary's experience. Verse 27. To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin, it's repeated twice, name was Mary. Go down to verse 34. We see it even a third time. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? What do we do with this stuff? What do we do when it seems downright unbelievable? Now, we're going to be stepping into a lot of stuff in Luke's gospel, a lot of miracles, a lot of different things that are out of the ordinary, things that we usually don't experience in everyday life. And so I'm so glad that Rod's preaching because he can explain all this to you. No, I'm kidding, but we're not going to dive into it fully today, but we're going to look at some of this. If you don't like my answer, hopefully Rod will do better. So let me say at the outset, though, poor Mary. In an effort of people reading this and saying, wow, this is really hard to believe. This is challenging stuff here. Poor Mary. She's had her character just besmirched. And this, this poor girl's been called kind of a liar and a fornicator. And, and there's one camp over here that just says, man, the, the virgin birth couldn't have happened. And then there's another side of the camp that basically is the Catholic Church. And they've taken Mary and they've actually elevated her so highly. They've come up with this doctrine, the Immaculate Conception, which isn't about how Jesus was born, it's actually that Mary was born free from original sin. And that Mary was this perpetual virgin, that all her other children in that were through virgin birth. And I feel like the task that we have today as the church is kind of that of, that of like an art curator, And Dick Lucas, this guy, he's a pastor over there in Europe across the pond, and he preached a sermon before I was even born, but I can't help but remember an example that he gave just talking about how when we read the Bible, there's a masterpiece underneath. But sometimes it's been painted over so many times, and it's just like when you get a painting and there's this beautiful painting and it begins to, uh, over the centuries, crack and chip and fade, and so people begin to touch it up. And people begin to kind of liven it back up and fix perceived imperfections. And pretty soon the painting looks very different than it did. And today we've got a painting here, a a masterpiece, I would argue, that if you do scans and you can see the original, it's far more beautiful than anything that's been painted over it. And I think both of these sides are just centuries worth of paint that we need to kind of clear away and see the real beauty that God has underneath. So, take the Catholic side over here. I really think that the more godlike that we make Mary, the more we minimize the beauty of the incarnation. When I say incarnation today, I want you to know what that means. I don't want you to be like me as a kid not knowing what the Latin was and that. Incarnation means God became flesh. God came down and he became fully God and fully human, and he walked among us. And the more that we make Mary godlike and make her sinless, we begin to minimize who the true hero in the story is because it's not Mary. The more that we make Mary godlike and even a perpetual kind of magic virgin, the more we say, you know what, Jesus isn't that unique because all of his other kids, all of his brothers and sisters were born of a virgin too. And more it just minimizes the sheer love of a God that would come down and come to a A poor peasant girl, a rather unremarkable girl in a rather unremarkable nation. Israel wasn't this, it wasn't Egypt, it wasn't Assyria. Israel was a small nation, and if you've been there, even the land itself is not that remarkable. It's beautiful, but it's not one that a lot of countries would fight over for land alone. In this insignificant-seeming town, and we see that God is a God who comes to what seems like the powerless and the insignificant of this world. He comes to the humble. But the true thing, the true beauty here, I really want to argue is that he would come at all. If I was Jesus, how I probably would have come, though, um, it would have minimized a lot of this stuff, is I probably would have come down with pyrotechnics, my own entrance music, like a chariot of fire, like my name written across the sky, like announcing that God is here. But we see that that's not God's character in this. He comes with such humility. I think we miss that if we make Mary too much. But let me back up too. Was Mary a virgin? We talked about that over here. It's real popular today to say that Mary couldn't have been or Mary wasn't a virgin. People have tried to say that Christianity co-opted this from other religions, that this was just other stories that were floating around during that time. And Christianity said, oh, we like that. We'll take that. But I want to challenge you this week. I tried a little bit. I want to challenge you to find me a story in the Greco-Roman world or anything before that of a virgin birth like this. What you'll find is you'll find stories of God coming down and God's coming down and sleeping with women. But it was more just about their lust. There's no virgin birth. And in this, there's not a hint of sexuality in this passage. So what do we do with this utterly unique, scientifically impossible thing? People come after Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7. They say, that's not really what's going on here, but Matthew quotes it saying that this is a virgin birth. Matthew and Luke make it very clear, repeated in our passage, that this is a virgin. The Bible clearly teaches, I would argue, that this is a virgin birth situation. And I want to give you one of the best evidences, for me at least, the thing that convinces me a lot, is Jesus' family. His brothers and his sisters, his mother, long after he's dead, still believe that he's the Messiah. Still believe that he's Christ. Even in the face of persecution, when it wasn't popular to do so, even when it cost them a lot, they continue to believe that this happened. In fact, in the first century, there's almost no evidence, there is no evidence that I could find, of any kind of schisms over the virgin birth. It didn't happen in the early church. You say, oh, well, they're just like rudimentary fishermen and all that stuff. They didn't really believe in logic like we do now. No way. The Greco-Roman world was built on logic. They thought through stuff every bit as much as we do today. And if you think, oh, well, back then they weren't as scientific. They didn't have x-rays, ultrasounds, the history channel. That's wrong, too, because I'm pretty sure that they knew where babies came from. I'm not thinking that they're confused with what the necessary components are to this. And yet they believe it. Now, why is it even important that we believe in the virgin birth? well, if the Bible's wrong about this, then what else is it wrong about? In fact, there's one famous quote. I guess it's really not that famous. I can't even remember who said it. But the person said, if I could know one thing in the history of the world, just one thing I want to know was Mary a virgin. And I'm pretty sure it was Larry King, by the way. Now I'm thinking of it. But the reason was because if that's true, then everything's true. But let me tell you, the virgin birth's not the most unbelievable story or the unbelievable part of this story. It's not amazing that God came into the world through virgin flesh. What's amazing is that God came into the world at all. That's the part that we need to focus on. But let me step into the other one real quick too. The other part that that I I don't want people to get hung up on. What about these angels? Did they really show up? Look at it, verse 26 again. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at these words and wondered what kind of greeting this was. I want you to realize, angels showing up is not commonplace even in biblical times. Okay. Look at the reactions of Mary and Zechariah last week. They let you know this is not like the norm. They just expected to wake up, eat their cereal, and like, oh yeah, then an angel shows up and then I go about my day. Mary's like freaked out. The angel has to say, don't be afraid here. Zechariah, the same thing. Zechariah's like, well, I need a sign to kind of prove this thing. And so he's deaf and he's mute as a result. And that word Mary uses there, pondered is a very key word. It's it's thinking through very diligently. This is 400 years of silence before this point. This is not commonplace. I don't think there's anything in Mary's worldview that says, an angel's going to show up and talk to me. Luke, if you look at, too, even as a little bit of evidence for this thing, Luke goes through there and he diligently, if you look at Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, Luke's a scientist and he goes around and he investigates all this stuff so that this dude Theo, Theophilus, could know for certain the things that he heard. And I can just imagine him going around fact checking these stories, like showing up at the town where Zechariah saw this angel and being like, okay, guys, what happened here? And then being like, yeah, it was weird. This guy came out of the temple. He was like white. He looked like he'd seen a ghost. He couldn't talk anymore. He was deaf. And then, like, all of a sudden, he starts writing down his name is John, and boom, he starts like worshiping, and like it goes all Wizard of Ozzy. He just breaks into song in the middle of like a sentence, and it's crazy. And you think, wow, well, it was probably, I mean, a lot easier back then to make up stories. I can't help but think of my dad, my biological dad. I've never seen him read a book in my life, but he told me that he read part of a book. And it was the first one since middle school. It was a book called Million Little Pieces. You guys remember remember that? people shaking their heads. It was a book like this, a memoir? Is that the word I'm looking for? A memoir on a guy who was like a drug addict. And my dad said, this is my life. And I started reading it and I got a couple pages in and then the news broke that this whole thing had been kind of fabricated, stolen from other people's stories. And like I said, you think it's, people do fact check, but you think it's a lot easier back then to make up stories, I think it's actually the opposite. Even though we have Google and we have Facebook and we have stuff like that that can expose people, back then you didn't have telephones. So when Luke went and he visited Mary, and he's like, tell me about the virgin birth. She couldn't say, okay, James, he's coming to you next. This is what I said. Let's corroborate our story here. He traveled around from town to town, people who weren't able to communicate and share stories like that, And all the details lined up. He writes this book and he says, Theo, man, you can know this stuff for certain. This happened. I researched it. I looked all around. But I want to tell you today, if you're a skeptic, if you're someone who is in here who struggles with these things, look at the verse that Mary pondered on these things. That word is very specific, like I said. It means she really thought it through. She mulled it over. She wondered what this is. In fact, I don't even know if she believed it right away. Because you see, she doesn't break into songs. She doesn't give any kind of worship until she goes and sees Elizabeth. And Elizabeth sees her and immediately is like, you're pregnant and it's with my Lord. And then Mary's like, okay, I buy it. (laughs) And she breaks into this famous, famous song. But all right, I'm off topic a little bit. All right, where were we? Okay, in the sixth month, let me see if I can get my place. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Okay, we talked about angels. To a virgin, got that too. Pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Why is that important? The Messiah is going to come through the Davidic line, right? Good. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. Okay, that's key. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. What is this finding favor? What does it look like to be favored or highly favored by God? I think I can say pretty definitively one thing it's not, but let's look at Mary's life here. Mary had to, immediately after this, go convince her fiance Joseph, I'm pregnant. Uh, No, I didn't commit adultery, it's the Holy Spirit's baby. That was a tough conversation. That was not easy to be. I'm sure Mary wasn't feeling like, man, I'm so highly favored right now. And you notice even the angel didn't show up to Joseph until after they had the conversation. Then the next thing we see with Mary is she's walking 90 miles at nine months pregnant to do a census. That's difficult to do. I'm not even a woman, and I can say pretty definitively, that's difficult to do. She gives birth in what we could say, what, maybe farmish conditions, And then she has her son disappear for several days and she can't find him anywhere and she's freaking out. And then Jesus has a public ministry where he's scrutinized and she listens to all these different opinions and people talking bad about her son. And then this beloved son, she watches as he's stripped naked and he's beaten and he's tortured and he's crucified. This is the life of Mary that we see in the Bible. This is the life of so many of the chosen characters of the Bible. We talked about Job this summer, who's chosen because of his righteousness. And what's he chosen for? To lose everything and to suffer. And I can't help but pick on this a little bit because I just feel like in our world today, highly favored, to be chosen by God, to be a Christian has taken on a total different meaning. And so let me just say, to be highly favored doesn't mean happiness necessarily God is more concerned with your holiness than he is with your happiness we say it again the opposite way God is more concerned or God is not as concerned with your happiness as he is with your holiness but we live in a culture that's obsessed with happiness even in the church today to become a Christian doesn't guarantee ease of life I've I hear this preached all the time the prosperity gospel, but even apart from that, even people who I've heard are very solid. We can slip into this as Christians. I can slip into this where when I suffer and I just feel like, God, it's not fair. And I was writing this and on Friday I got on Facebook and I saw this. And I don't want to pick on anybody in particular or anything, but I just saw it. And I, and I want to put it up there, if you don't mind, just because it... Can you guys see that with the thing? Okay, let me read it. It said, God is working for you tonight. Heaven is holding conversations about you. Angels have been assigned to you. Be at peace. Who's the main character in that? Us. And I don't say this to pick on this person. I actually have so, many multi, I have so many mutual friends with the person who posted this. And I hear they're very solid. But every one of us, myself included, we can slip into this kind of me-centered world where we think that being a Christian promises blessing let me say this, God does not work for you, ever. You work for God. You are not his boss. Angels are not talking about you in heaven. Angels are in heaven saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what's going on. And I think Mary gets this, that it's not about her, that following her or following him it's going to mean some trouble. It's going to mean a difficult conversation with her fiance, at a minimum. God is not obsessed with our happiness like we are. And I actually think it's really freeing when we're a part of something that's bigger than us. When we're a part of something that's bigger than us, it allows us to kind of forget about ourselves for a little bit something that's going to go on long after we're gone, we don't have to work so hard to make sure that we're recognized, that we're significant, that we're important, that we're getting the value and the praise that we think is due to ourselves. So let me just say today, we got to be on guard against this. we got to be on guard about making too much of ourselves or making happiness the obsession of our lives. I hear this all the time. So many marriages right now are ending because people are claiming Well, God wants me to be happy, and I'm not happy in this. No, God wants you to be married. God wants you to sacrifice yourself for your spouse. God wants you to love your spouse as Christ loves the church, to stop worrying about your happiness and start worrying about him and your spouse. I see the same thing with callings, people that are just rejecting the things that God has for them because it's too hard. I could make a lot more money doing this. I could be a lot happier if I did that. I see relationships, singles, relationships that are ending, or that aren't ending, let me actually rephrase that, relationships that should end, that you know that you need to get out of, but I hear people claiming stuff like, it's just too hard, and I really think God wouldn't ask me to do something this difficult. He wants me to be happy, and even though I know this relationship's wrong, it makes me happy. God is less concerned with your happiness than with your holiness. Does that mean he's cruel? No. Look at this passage. He comes down and he dies for us. He loves us. He's crazy about us. He just loves us enough to realize that our happiness isn't always the best thing for us. And I think we confuse blessing with coddling today. I know I do. Read the Beatitudes of what a blessed life looks like. Matthew 5, 1 through 12. A little spoiler. The last one ends with, blessed are you when you're persecuted. There's a book coming out. I probably shouldn't know this. I definitely probably shouldn't say it publicly, but I'm going to assume that Zondervan will forgive me for the free publicity. There's a book coming out, and the main idea is highly favored does not mean highly pampered. Is that Dave? (laughs) I love you, dude. Come on. (laughs) So let me say, let me... uh, Let me say this too though. Mary is blessed and in the evangelical church we've diminished her and we've made her a little too small. I think we've rebelled against the Catholic church. Mary shares DNA with the living God in this point. When she looks at Jesus I think she thinks oh he's got my nose. Look at that awkward waddle when he's learning how to walk. I did that too. I read a study this week that blew me away. It was just a science like a biology article and it talked about how During the birth process, there's the placenta that nutrients and gases and waste travel between the mother and the baby, but that cells are actually exchanged, and that if you take a woman who's passed away and you check out her body and all that stuff, you'll actually find the cells of all of her kids living in her liver, kidneys, heart, even the brain, and this kind of blew me away. One, because women, you just are the crown jewel of creation. I'm convinced of it. Your bodies are amazing what you can do. Um, men, don't feel too left out, though. You have little pieces of your mother living inside of you. You take her. Wherever you go, your mom is there, too. And some of you bring way too much of her, all right? Leave and cleave, Dude. But because I was studying Mary at this time, don't nudge your husbands, please, all that stuff. I see, like, people looking at specific people in this room. Um, (laughs) I was studying Mary, though, reading this, and I couldn't help but think about this. Mary had Jesus' cells, if this study's accurate, inside of her. And I'm not saying anything, like, overly mystical about that. I'm just saying that's cool. Mary certainly is blessed. She was called to carry in her womb the God of this universe. And God was willing to so humble himself that he was willing to swap cells with a poor peasant girl. That's the God that we serve. This also helps point out a key thing that I think is just important. It's not a big part of this passage, but it is a big part of our Bibles, and we get it wrong. The Bible's not sexist. Can I just say that? This is like the biggest three, four decades in human history. And who are the, the main characters right here at this part? Read on. We're not going to have time to read it. But going on the, the section right afterwards, it's Mary and Elizabeth. The Bible isn't sexist. Look at the resurrection. Who's the first person there? Anyone? Who's the first person? Mary. And Mary's tasked with the task of going back and letting the, everybody else know that Jesus had risen. Everyone in the world who's heard about Jesus' resurrection can trace their roots back to Mary Magdalene. The Bible's not sexist. In fact, to put this, I think some of you guys, I, I'm looking at your faces, you need a little more convincing on this. The first century, this isn't today's day and age where you're like, oh yeah, big deal. This is the first century when women couldn't testify in court. And this is what's recorded, another reason to believe this, is Luke wouldn't have put women in such a prominent place in all these spots if he was writing to say like, oh, I got to convince you, this has got to be, I got to make sure that you believe this. He's saying, this is what really happened. You can be certain of it, this is what really happened, even when it's slightly on the embarrassing side or whatever. In the first century, I'm told, I didn't live back then, but Jews would oftentimes or at least sometimes pray, God, thank you that I'm not born a Gentile or a woman. The Bible is revolutionary. There's no other book or ancient religion that elevates women the way that the Bible does. So ladies, let me just say that. Be encouraged. The Bible's not sexist. If you think it is, read it again. All right, back to our passage. So if you tuned out, there's a great place to tune back in right here. Verse 32. Great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him This is, he'll be called great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Amazing. This is about Jesus here. But I want you guys to know, this is the fulfillment of the the promise. This is the fulfillment of the entire Bible here coming out with this baby being born. If God fulfills this one, he'll fulfill all of his other promises. Rod talked about the waiting last week. How God promised in thousands of years, Israel has been waiting for a Savior. There's this theme of silence all throughout Scripture. God, are you going to show up? Are you really coming? Do you really remember your promises? God, do you remember us? The question we may be asked today is God, do you remember us? God, where are you? Where are you, God? This is the answer to that question, the definitive answer. Where are you, God? This is where God answers it once and for all. I want to give you guys a little context as we look at that. Typically, a preacher will give the context at the beginning. Hey, Jeremy Olson's here. Sorry, this guy lives in Pennsylvania, and I just was excited to see him. Um, (laughs) It's not a show. It's not a show, right? Um, So anyhow, we're family here. Can I do that? Is that okay for me to just kind of call out people like Dave Giroux and that? Not playing favorites, I promise. A little bit of a context. Most preachers give this before you read the passage. I want to give it to you at the end here. What's going on here? What's leading up to this passage? What can we kind of root this in? And I want to take you all the way back to the beginning. You guys will have heard this before, but I want you to hear it with your heart. In the beginning, God created humanity. He created us, man and woman. He created all of creation. And it was beautiful. It was very good. There was no evil. There was no suffering. Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day with God. There was no distance between God and man, and there was no distance between man and woman. It was perfect. Gave mankind or humanity the the gift of all of creation. Steward it. Take care of it. Made mankind in his image, but mankind said it's not enough to be in your image We want to be you. Adam and Eve rebel against this creation. And the only thing that I can think of that parallels it, we don't see what a rebellion this is, is maybe marriage still comes up short, where you give all of yourself emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially, everything that you have, you give to another person. You say, I'm in it with you to the end. We're together. I've got your back. You've got my back. And when a spouse looks at you and says, your all isn't enough, and they betray you, and they go after another, that's what's going on here. It's a stabbing of God in the back, God who's given everything to humanity that they could ever need, and us saying, it's not enough. And as a result, evil and sin and suffering, they come into the world. The evil and sin and suffering that God had protected us from are there. And mankind is rightfully cursed. But before the curse even comes down, God says, I got you. And in Genesis 3.15, he promises, this is going to be temporary. I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. It's going to bruise my heel. And we see that all throughout scripture, God revealing, he's coming to make it right. He's going to restore us. Revelation 21 and 22, we're going to be back to that state, but it's going to cost him. It's going to cost him immensely. The perfect God who created the world without pain is going to subject himself to pain so that we can be lifted up out of it. Where is there a God like this? Where is there a story like this? Of a person, or in this case, a God who... who responds to rebellion and treachery and backstabbing like that? Are you guys surprised at why the angels sing at this news? That not only would the infinite God suffer, but the infinite God would become a single cell and be housed to call a poor peasant girl's womb home for nine months. You say, I want a God who loves. I don't want a God like the Bible where he talks about sin and judgment and all those type of things. Are you kidding me? You'll not find a God like this anywhere in the world. You'll not find a God like this in any book, any religion, a person like this. Greater love has no one than this, that, you, that someone lay down their life for a friend. Folks, God doesn't lay down his life for a friend. He lays down his life for a backstabbing, rebellious creation. We don't know how amazing this is. We don't get how amazing it is because, one, we think that we're actually worthy of that. And two, we don't see how big and infinite God really is. So today I want to ask you, this is the truth that I missed. This is the thing that I actually thought Santa Claus was better than. Are you kidding me? Do you believe this? We sang a song. I'm not talking about if you can say the words, I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the virgin birth. I'm asking you, do you believe it with your heart? Does it shape the way that you live so get off of my notes right now. This should change everything for us. If the incarnation is real, if God really was willing to do that for us, if He really did it, it changes everything. I talked about marriage. My marriage should look radically different because I love my wife from a place of being loved by a God who gave up everything for me. I can sacrifice for my wife because I realize how much has been sacrificed for me. It should change how we deal with our finances. Because no longer do we need to spend on making ourselves look better than or look special or make ourselves more significant or valuable through what we look like or what we spend our money on or what our house looks like or any of those type of things. Because we know that our value and our significance comes from God coming down and saving us and adopting us into his family and his kingdom. It should change how we deal with failure. I read something on Facebook this week was from Lolo Jones Olympic hurdler she came up short three times in the Olympics heartbreakingly so she got on Dancing with the Stars and she blew it and she wrote on Facebook afterwards I feel so unlovable so unworthy so insignificant I wanted to get on Dancing with the Stars and uh, forgive me this is a paraphrase I wanted to get on there and show the world how hard I work and and redeem my name basically and she talked about finding all of her value in her performance. And she's a Christian. She kind of rebuked herself at the end. The incarnation speaks to how we deal with failure because it's not about us. We have a God who says, you know what? You did fail. You did blow it. But I got that. I'm willing to come down. I'm willing to live in the womb of a woman. I'm willing to be born in some really extraordinary and humbling circumstances because I want you guys. You're mine. Do you believe that today? Because that news is everything. That news changes everything for us. Let's pray. God, I just confess. I invite you guys to even join me right now. God, I just confess that I don't believe that the way that I should. I live my life without thinking about that. I live my life trying to find my value and significance and so much other stuff. God, I pray that you would open our eyes today to who you are and to what you did and to how you love us and to just what a great God we serve. We love you, God. We offer our lives as worship knowing that it's such a small thing in response to such a big thing. Pray this all in Jesus' precious and holy and redeeming name. Amen.